All right, well, good morning, everyone. As Dad said, we are in 2 Samuel. Uh, last week, we finished up chapter 4, and uh, we have seen that all of 1 Samuel uh, was bringing us uh, the, the backstory of how David uh, would become king. And it's, it's starting to happen. And in chapter 4, uh, we see that, um, uh, that the tribe of Judah uh, has... Um, which was David's home tribe had uh, had claimed him as king, and um, and uh, that was going on then, and then in chapter five, as we'll pick up today, we have really a, a pivotal a, a pivotal chapter uh, that uh, gets us to uh, when when David is going to be king over a unified nation, and then we get uh, kind of a preview of what's going to happen in the rest of the book. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. They anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So there's a lot in this opening paragraph, so let's break it down a little bit. So uh, we remember that Abner, uh, who was the second-in-command, so to speak, to Saul, uh, had... He could sense the changing of the tide. He knew that Saul's days were were coming to a close, and he had already done some prep work to the remaining tribes, um, basically uh, saying that they needed to to fall in with David, and um, ultimately that's what happened. So they come, uh, those representatives from the remaining 11 tribes, come to David, and they say, basically, we want you at our, as our king. And they give three reasons. Number one, we are your bone and flesh. In other words, they recognize that, uh, you know, back in the day when Israel and the, the nation had wanted a king, uh, one of the, the rules was that he had to be from among themselves. It couldn't be a, a foreigner over them. So they said, number one, you know, you're our bone and flesh, or as we normally say, flesh and bone. Number two, it says, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. In other words, you're the one that, that had the major victories. You're the one that it seemed God's hand was on. Uh, you were the one that um, seemed to act in the appropriate way. And number three, more importantly, and it was the Lord who said to you, you shall be my shepherd you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So those are three really good reasons for, for them to come together in unity saying, we want you as our king. It's worth spending a, a moment here to highlight in the last part of verse 2 where it says, you shall be shepherd of my people in Israel. Now, uh, 
it was a popular picture of various leaders when they would come to power to kind of claim to be a good shepherd of the people because uh, the shepherds had um, a benevolent kind of appearance um, to uh, uh, their flock and, and so forth. But with David, there's special meaning here because um, if you remember uh, when uh, Samuel went out to uh, approach Jesse uh, because God had told him uh, one of Jesse's sons is going to be king, uh, where was David? He was out doing shepherd stuff. He was in the fields. Uh, in fact, they had to call him in because it, you know, Sam was like, well, you know, I haven't seen him yet. So they had to go get David from the fields. And then here we say, or rather the Lord says, you will be shepherd of my people. All right? You can be a good shepherd, right? David in Psalm 23 says what? The Lord is my shepherd, right? But it was probably no accident that when we'll see in a few chapters when Nathan rebukes David over his sin, he talks about how people are handling their sheep. And so you can be a good shepherd or you can be a bad shepherd. Um, and then, of course, our ultimate good shepherd, um, as Jesus described himself. So a lot of that, when God says, you shall be shepherd of my people, there's a lot of meaning packed into that, for sure. Something interesting here, it says in verse 3, after the elders came to him, it says, King David made a covenant with them. So we hear a lot about covenants between God and man. This is unusual in the sense that David is making a covenant with these other tribes. The assumption is that uh, he would commit to be the type of king that we heard about in Deuteronomy, uh, the requirements of a king, uh, that he made that sort of a commitment uh, to them. This, the ideal was if that you know God said yes, you want a king. That means. You're really not wanting me directly, but if you're going to have a king, then then it should be um, a king who is in relationship with me, and that's the ideal there. And presumably, covenant uh, the the covenant that David committed to those people was that he was going to be uh, their king, but under God. Verse four, we find that he was thirty years old. Um, which means that in those years that he was hiding and running and, and winning battles and everything, that was a lot going on for an otherwise young man. And in timeline there, it said he had been king of Judah for seven and a half years. So it's interesting. We, all of these things kind of get compressed into a, a timeline um, but that's interesting. He's had seven years of being king over his own tribe, basically, before the other tribes coalesce. And, I mean, what was going on seven years ago in your life? I'd have to really think about it. Um, so a lot of time has passed. You know, those those 11 tribes have been kind of making it up as they go along. They each have their own clan. They're probably having their own battles to fight on the 
you know, so it took them a while for them to coalesce around him, but but ultimately they did. So it is an interesting timeline, though, right? I mean, when we pray for things, we're kind of expecting something relatively soon, right? Um, you know, if there were people that were praying back then for the unity of the nation, it was seven years, seven and a half years before that all came about. All right, verse 6. And the king and his men, oh, let me make one other point. When it says they anointed David king over Israel, that was his third anointing, right? Samuel anointed him way back when he was a kid, saying, you know, when, when God's, in God's mind, he took his hand off Saul and put it on David. And then he was, we saw last week, he was anointed by his own tribe as king. And then now this is the third anointing as king he has in any event. Verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said, well, let me pause there. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. So let's talk about Jerusalem a little bit. So Jerusalem, um, it's up on a hill. It's surrounded on three sides by a valley and was um, a very defensible position. So these Jebusites, they were occupying this place. It was its own entity, its own city-state, you know. Um, it was not part of Judah, even though it was on the northern edge of Judah. It was not part of Israel. It, it was just its own thing. The, the Jebusites had it. But, smart politically, what a great choice to establish your new capital of a unified country than by selecting a place that wouldn't offend either the north or the south. Right? So that's what was going on. So, the Jebusites had been used to having this very defensible position, and so when they come up to David, or when David comes up to them, they say, you will not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. In other words, there are several thoughts about what this blind and lame comment means. Some people mean that they uh, had idols stashed along the rim, you know, inanimate objects that can't see or walk. And they said, you know, those are strong enough to keep you from coming in. You know, this kind of taunting sort of thing you can imagine. Um, or they maybe were saying, you know, even our blind and lame people would be ample enough to keep you from coming in. Verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said, On that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. So we know a little bit more about this. From, there's a similar account, a parallel account in First Chronicles. And um, the thinking is that um, some of the, well, I'll, I'll make the point that in Jerusalem, one of its big advantages was that it had its own kind of internal water supply. So there were natural people, say, um, channels in the limestone of 
the city that brought in water that could be accessed by the people. And over the years, some of those natural built-in tunnels and channels had been enlarged um, in such a way where you know, there were pools that they could access, there were enlarged uh, canals and so forth. So Jerusalem was not really one that you could take easily by siege because it had its own water supply. Uh, the thinking is that someone in First, First Chronicles, we find that it was Joab, they think maybe found one of these canals or channels or water shafts or waterfalls, depending on what you believe, somehow made his way up there and got entrance to the city, and that was what uh, allowed them to take it over. In any event, they did. And uh, it said, uh, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. Now, where is this stronghold? Well, there's been a lot of debate. Of course, there's tons of archaeology over there. And um, they say that this stronghold was maybe not in um, maybe the central part of what was Jerusalem, but in more of an outskirts area. In any event, David started to build up Jerusalem. It says um, he built the city all around him from the Milo inward. Um, there was this, I'm picturing like a depression in the land that was built up on its edges and then filled in with rock and rubble and so forth and then that became a foundation for future building and they have archaeologists have found what they think is this area this built up area um, where um, where you could have an adequate foundation for further building and then if the city expanded then you would go to that border, build another basically retaining wall, and then fill that part in, and then expand it as much as you needed to uh, to create suitable places, or it might be in a terraced fashion, but you get the idea. Verse 10, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Verse 11, Things are going well with David. It says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David and cedar trees, and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. By referencing outside sources, the understanding is that this all happened probably 11 years or so into David's reign. Um, so the writers who are writing you know, a good while after the fact are putting this information in here um, but it's not like it happened, you know, right away. Uh, if you'll remember back when some of these battles were being fought, we found out that the, the Israelites really didn't know anything about craftsmanship, right? They couldn't make their own swords. They had no blacksmiths in the area. They, they were, that's not, that wasn't their thing. And if you think about it, you know, their repertoire of skills that they developed in Egypt was this was a small set, right? You could make bricks or you could raise livestock. That's what they were good at. Um, and even generations later, you know, a lot of those skills weren't known to them. So when when Hiram King of Tyre sent materials, he sent the craftsmen to go with it, which is kind of nice. It's analogous to 
receiving some piece of electronics and not receiving a teenager to teach you how to do it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's nice when they come together. Verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nephig, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Now, I don't know that there's much significance about any of those people, but they got their names in the Bible, so that's worth something. I thought I'd read them. <laughs> Verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. That's where it had been staying, right? We heard about the stronghold. And by way of time, a lot of people think what's about to be described may have happened in that interval from the time that the tribes were acknowledging him as king until he got established at Jerusalem, until he took over Jerusalem, that kind of time frame. So the, the narrators and so forth are going back and forth. Now the Philistines, I'm in verse 18, now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord. Now, we've seen this several times, right? Many times when David has had access to the, um, uh, to the decision-making, you know, casting of lots uh, arrangement that God had designed, he inquires before the Lord what to do. And he says, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. The Philistines, of course, are a stubborn and persistent bunch. So in verse 22, we hear, And the Philistines came up yet again. And spread out in the valley of Rephaim. By the way, this, these valleys, um, the king of Tyre that had just brought them um, materials, you know, we find later, uh, he had trees and so forth, but they didn't have a whole lot of produce. Whereas the, in the valleys, they could grow a lot of crops. So this sort of a trade thing had already established um, uh, down the road, but in this case that hasn't happened yet, so we've still got the valleys, and now they're being used for war and not for planting. David asks again, should I go up? And he says, you shall not go up, but go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So in this case, not only does God tell him um, uh, that it's okay uh, uh, to fight, but tells him how to do it. So I think this is interesting because in a lot of the times when David has inquired of the Lord, it's been a yes-no sort of thing. Shall I go up? Shall I not go up? 
So that's the casting of the lots, the Urim and Thummim or whatever. Well, here we have very specific instructions. You don't get this kind of instruction just from casting the lots there. Um, God spoke to him in some way, and uh, so I think that's very interesting. David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So here we have this interesting chapter where we find that David is king. We hear a little bit about his connections with you know, the, the region, with this king of Tyre comment. The narrators, though, are already giving us a picture of David as still somewhat of a flawed king because right in the middle of everything, just remember, just as David has already made a covenant with the tribes to be the kind of king that God called for back in Deuteronomy, remember the king that was told, and don't take many wives? that king. And here we find that one of the first things he did was to follow the lead of other conquering chieftains, so to speak. When you conquered an area, the first thing you did was you got a lot of wives of concubines and enlarged your group of supporters, shall we say. (laughs) And interesting, this is one of the few if not the only places where the, the, the writers say concubines and wives, not wives and concubines. So you get these subtle little hints that, that the writers were, and through the Holy Spirit of course, uh, bringing the point that, that David's king, but, but it's not going to be smooth sailing. But very interesting chapter. All right, let's move on to chapter 6. And David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, the ark had basically just been hanging out back from 1 Samuel, right? Back in Saul's earliest days. Right? Remember the Philistines had captured the ark. Um, it had started to wreak havoc among them. They, remember, put it on the cart and slapped the cows, Heine, and sent them on their way. And it bounced around in some of the frontier lands um, and finally found a home. David says, you know, I'm going to go get the ark. So, Verse 3, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry 
because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David is bringing the the, um, ark home. He's got it on a cart. It's being uh, managed um, by the sons of the people who have had it for a while. And things are going well until the ox stumbles, the ark shifts, and I guess out of reflex, Uzzah puts the hand on the ark to stabilize it, and he drops dead. David is very much taken aback by this because it's fresh in his mind that if you have the ark in a place where you're not supposed to have it, bad things happen to you, right? Remember all the boils and everything that happened to the Philistines? Tumors and tumors shaped like mice or something with mice and tumors. So I'm a little faded on that now. I didn't understand it a whole lot then, but it's been a few weeks, right? But anyway, bad stuff was happening to the Philistines when they had the ark and they shouldn't have. And so David is really afraid. This guy just died. So this is really, you know, kind of too bad at first for this Obed-Edom to get tight. David says, no, it's not coming to Jerusalem. Let's send it to his house. So <laughs> he's going to be, well, thanks a lot, David. You know? Um, anyway, thankfully, good things happened, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So here we get to verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So... <laughs> Kind of seems a little mean. So David went up and brought the ark of God. Now that he knew it, it was safe. Um, that, that's my. That's not in my text. Um, he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. So what changed? The prescribed way for transporting the ark was with a specific tribe. Uh, specific members of a clan of the tribe of Levi and the priests had special poles and it was carried by that special tribe of Levi. It was carried by those guys. So what's changed here? The cart's no longer, I mean the ark is no longer on a cart. It's now being carried by people and now things are being done in proper order. So David appears to have learned his lesson. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, a priestly garment. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This was a big deal, right? The ark is finally coming back to the center of the nation. The nation is being reestablished, reunified under uh, a godly king, uh, God's anointed uh, David. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And when David had finished the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. So David's had a big day, right? The ark is home. He is so happy. He celebrates by dancing and by giving gifts to everyone there. Verse 20, And David returned home to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, the female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So he comes crashing down to earth now that he's walked in the back door and far from participating in the celebration, say, oh, sweetheart, that was so amazing. And it's interesting that David actually goes back home to his first wife, Michael, right? Saul's daughter. And this is what he hears. So verse 21, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father, by the way, and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael the daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death. So, David says, this was between me and the Lord. I will make Mary before the Lord, and, and it might even get worse than this because it's between me and God. This is an interesting little glimpse into the household, right? Nothing more interesting than peeling back and seeing what happens between husbands and wives. What do you think about this? What do you think about this little passage? Was she jealous? Maybe. It sounds like it. There was a lot going on. Um, David defended his, that it was appropriate for him to. So he didn't just take it, he stood up for himself, right? Okay. I mean, you know, husbands and wives do have arguments, and they do. They did in the Bible. <laughs> That's true. It is definitely a, a glimpse of reality. So maybe there's some other baggage going on. And that, I, th- I think you might be on something, because a lot of times the argument's never really the argument, right? What you think you're arguing about is not really always what you're arguing about. So I've heard. <laughs> so jealous for Saul, kind of taken up for the family name. Yeah, I think, Karen, I think that, 
that may be part of it. You know, think about it. She was probably, well, no, probably she was raised in a royal household, right? She was used to status. She had her own ideas of what um, a, a kingly court should look like. She had opinions. And she didn't think David was acting very kingly, wasn't acting very appropriate. She, she thought it appropriate to scold him about that. What else? He was very human. David was very human. He was a king, but he was yeah, very human. We, we look at that today with the royal family and all. They're human beings. True. <laughs> True. They have problems. <clears throat> you know, uh, we know that David from the Psalms. We know he's certainly very expressive. Um, uh, seemed to be a creative type, obviously, and and uh, so this. This doesn't surprise us when we hear how he acted, right? He seemed to, with God, he seemed to be all in, right? I mean, you hear these, when he's pouring out his heart to God in the Psalms, you just know he's just all in. And when he feels bad, you know that too. Oh, my Lord, I've never been in such a pit of despair, you know? I mean, you hear that, that's not a quote, by the way, that's... (laughs) She she was looking through a... She was looking more at David than she was at God. Exactly, exactly. I think all of that is great discussion. Um, and one of those things that, as I was reading, that I wasn't thinking about, but our friends, various commentators, um, kind of peeled this back and, and made the point. You know, here we have uh, David... Uh, who was anointed king to be the good shepherd of the people. Um, Being dishonored, uncovering himself before the eyes of all these servants. Kind of like Jesus, right? When he went to the cross, was he looking like a king? Was he naked? Was it shameful? Were people standing around gawking? They were. So here we have one of those little, one of those little pictures where uh, at times when we talk about the redemption out of Egypt and we say that Jesus was the better Moses. Right? And here we have this little glimpse, this little foreshadowing so to speak and we know that Jesus was the better David and that just as Jesus was the better David Jesus kingdom is going to be a better kingdom right and we'll continue to see that as we go along but um, just pretty cool stuff uh, when you look at history especially since we know how the story turns out it's All right. also kind of interesting that you can look at it today. Uh, we don't always like or approve of the way other people worship. And that's between them and God. We shouldn't be judging. And that's a great point, Pat. Um, you didn't hear, she said, you know, we may not always approve or it may not always feel comfortable to us looking at how someone else worships. 
Um, but if, if they have the same relationship with God that we do, you know, that's between them and the Lord. All right? It doesn't sound like she was worshiping much. It know, does not sound... Excellent point. She was way more concerned about appearances than what was happening in, in her country. I think that's excellent. He obviously did not marry someone of his own faith. He married someone that yeah. was not his equal as far as that was concerned. Yep. So that was not right to begin with. He was not equally yoked as far as religion was concerned. That's true. Of course, um, you know, back in the day... Uh, it was a little different, you know, in terms of political alliances and all that sort of stuff. But uh, certainly when you are not the same before the Lord, there's going to be problems, right? And I think that point is very well, very well made. Aren't you asked while I go to Bumblebee seven years ago, Bob Lee part and I, and I think Pat were in Israel. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's close. Father, we thank you that through... Uh, a few millennia of time, you can still reach down and through the power of your word and through the application of the Holy Spirit, you can speak to us and teach us and um, make us ever more grateful that we get to have this story as part of our own story. And we thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.